Hello and welcome to another episode of Good for Profit. Today's guest with us is Anthony David King. Anthony is someone who's been working within the startup ecosystem in the UK really ever since its inception. He's actually helped build it, if anything. Back starting with Startup Weekend that eventually got bought out by Techstars. He's been building programs, incubators, accelerators before the term was even coined in the UK and has since worked with um, different governments all over the world, as well as many companies all over the world. Um, one of the programs is currently uh, working on, uh, one of the programs that ADK, his company, have uh, are sort of running is the Airbnb uh, Startup Entrepreneurs Program. And he does a lot of work within within that world. And so he's someone who's got a lot of deep insight, not only into how to build successful startups and companies and how to build successful incubators and accelerators, but also into what it takes to actually build a tech hub within a city. What does it take to take London from not very much going on within the tech startup side of things to second best in the world when it comes to that within the space of really just over a decade, if you think about it. It's pretty incredible, very insightful stuff that we talk about. And this conversation has been a long time coming. I've been meaning to get Anthony on the podcast for a while. So I'm so glad that he made the time and, and we could get him uh, in. However, with that being said, we couldn't go into too much detail. Otherwise, we would have ended up talking for seven, eight hours and decided to just go through a rough timeline from, say, 2010-ish up until now, how the UK has looked, how it's been shaped in, in different ways with different funding that's coming from the government and investors and VCs coming into the, the city, but also what takeaways are there for emerging markets? What can we learn from, from what's gone on with current tech hubs that have made it big? So a lot to go into, and we scratch the surface on this one, but it's still pretty damn insightful, and we'll go into a lot more detail in part two, which will come soon at some point. So without further ado, I'm your host, Mo. This is Good for Profit, the podcast where we speak with founders, entrepreneurs, startup ecosystem leaders that are helping build businesses that are both good for the world and good for profit. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Anthony as much as I did. All right. Hello and welcome. Anthony, pleasure to have you with us, my friend. Been trying to get you on here for a little while and uh, finally made it. Yeah, uh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. No, it's, it's a pleasure to have you, man. Um, so before we get started, first of all, how are you? How's life? Uh, how's your day going? And you're in London right now, I'm presuming? Yeah, um, uh, we. I, I still work in London at the moment. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, so I've been working uh, from home since lockdown. Um, we do have a new office space, but it's more of a kind of a sort of hybrid working, sometimes work from home, sometimes from the office. So uh, things are a little more balanced now that uh, we're getting back out of uh, sort of lockdown and things are opening up. That's nice. Do, do you prefer working from home or the office? I mean, you know, I actually do you, now. You um, I was... Then. Yeah, I do, I do now. Um, I've got a, a new addition to the family, as you know, a young son who's just turned one. So I get to spend a little more time with him not having to travel back from central London. So just being able to switch off from work and simply just go downstairs and back in family mode. So I save a couple of hours here and there uh, working from home. So that's great. That's really lovely, mate. That's amazing. I'm uh, I'm lucky to be uh, you know not in that boat right now. I suppose you could say lucky and unlucky. Uh, but yeah, so so right now I have a bit more freedom on kind of what I, whether I work from home or the office. But I'm sure that when the day comes for me, I'm probably going to work want to work from home uh, more so than I do from the office. So totally understandable. And yeah, amazing that you have the opportunity to have that time, right? Because before lockdown, that would have been sort of unheard of, right? 
So, you know, COVID isn't yeah, all that. I think um, it, yeah, I think it definitely, I, I think it, it was obviously a really bad experience for many people around the world and everyone dealt with it very differently. Um, for me personally, it, 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 it provided a number of opportunities in terms of figuring out um, a, a catastrophe proof business model that uh, we could kind of explore um, if at any time it should happen again. Um, but also just a lot of opportunities to spend time with family, reflect on what was important in life, um, what I wanted to spend my life doing. Um, you know, pre-COVID, I think everyone went into it with a, a certain uh, assumption that the world would always tick along just fine. And I think it showed us that actually, uh, you know, anything can happen at any point. And, you know, what are we spending our time doing? Is it important? Is it important to people, people we love, family, to people we serve, customers? And I think it was a really, um, that, was what, that was a moment for me. For, to, to be able to reflect and say, okay, what is it that I'm doing? What are we doing? What do I want to build? Who do I want to build it for? Um, what difference does it really make to the world? And uh, that's what I came out of it uh, with, not well, just a rebalance of personal priorities, but also uh, business priorities as well. Wow, mate. I mean, this is all stuff I was going to kind of dive into a little bit later, but since we're here, um, that, that sounds sounds like it, was, it had quite a profound uh, impact on you and you kind of made the most out of it in a very positive way. Um, do you, are you happy sharing kind of some of those things that you came to realize in terms of what that balance looks like, what that prioritization looks like kind of from a family slash work life? Yeah, again, going back to, um, you know, trying to be as efficient as I can with my personal time and energy. I think um, we, we, we focus a lot on time management, I think, as founders and as entrepreneurs, but um, energy management is something that I think we need to kind of really focus on. Um, there are things that we do that, you know, uh, zap our energy like a mobile phone battery. Um, some of those things that we engage in, you know, it's a slow trickle and other things, it's a real hard drain. Um, and I think a lot of those things you can kind of reflect on and say, okay, what are the things that I want to delegate to others? And what are the things that I need to maintain for some kind of leadership purposes? And the things that I want to, you know, uh, hone in on because they are absolutely relevant and critical to what I'm doing and what I'm building. And the other things that I uh, I don't really need to. So, so one of the things that I really sort of uh, uh, sort of toned back on was meetings. Do I really need to have this meeting? Does it need to be a meeting? Can it be an email? Can it be a text? Can it be a message? Um, I really started to kind of look at how much time I spent in meetings, not just internally with teams, but externally with uh, you know partners and clients and all of those kind of things. Um, a lot of meetings I kind of dialed into was, uh, a meeting could be 15 minutes to 20 minutes. Um, if it's really important, then it can be, you know, half an hour to 45, but very rarely now do meetings go past that. I think anything that wow. needs to be flushed out can be flushed out pretty quickly. Um, if it doesn't need to be a meeting, it can be an email. That's one of the things that really helped me kind of manage my time. And my diary now looks very different now that I've kind of implemented that uh, personal policy, you could call it, 
so it's it's really helped me in terms okay. of just maintaining my energy levels throughout the day. That's incredible, and that takes a lot of discipline to do. Um, that that must be really tough. So, like, I'm trying to think of trying to think. I I tried to implement at one point a never going beyond the 45 minute mark for meetings rule, um, and it kind of, I sort of managed to maintain it for a little bit, but not really for too long. And then ended up kind of going back again to having those long meetings that are in, in many times yeah. unnecessarily long. Right. Um, and it's one of those things where if you schedule something in for an hour or two, it will probably take an hour or two, even though it might not need to take that much time. So, I mean, what, one thing we're, we're very good at, um, where I am at the moment is if a meeting, if we finish the stuff we need to talk about early, we just kind of say, okay, let's, let's, that's it. We're done. Um, but we're still, we still kind of book things in for an hour or whatever, or two hours. Um, but yeah, it, that, I, I've personally found it really hard to do that, to stick to that kind of thing. So what, what's your, um, what's your take on that? What's your tactic with that? That actually kind of to stay on it, stay disciplined with saying, you know what, it's going to be 15 or 20 minutes. Or it's going to be like a sort of half an hour, 45 minutes or whatever, but kind of not going beyond uh, that by much. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So if, you know, um, if, so for example, if something doesn't have an impending deadline, um, you can pretty much say, you know, we're going to discuss this for half an hour, 45 minutes. If we need to pick it up again at some other point and discuss things further, then we can. So you have one 45 minute meeting and then probably another. Of course, that's in total an hour and a half, but most of the time you can crush whatever you need to in that 45 minutes. And then you find out that actually we don't need to have another meeting on this. We can just, you know, get going with whatever we have to do. So I think definitely being disciplined and having options or outs of, you know, why you may need, when you may not need to have another meeting is, is probably a, a good approach to take, but uh, certainly disciplining yourself to stick to those time limits in the first place really helps as you go on and on and on. And actually, as the more you practice it, um, and this is something I've been trying to teach my 11-year-old daughter is, you know, the more you practice something, the better you get at it. It's a very simple human, uh, you know, condition and 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 uh, principle. It's pretty wonderful more, that that's the case, right? Yeah, the more you practice half an hour meetings, the better you get at half an hour meetings. I see where you're getting at now. Okay. <laughs> uh, that, that's, a, that's a very good point. Um, I think maybe we need to practice it for a little bit longer and then kind of go from there. But but you're right. The whole kind of we'll pick it up again if we need to makes sense. And even though, yes, it, it's in total an hour and a half, you mentioned both time and energy management. And that's a really important point because yeah. energy management is, is just as important. And yeah, that, that's, a, that's something that... Um, that you're right. We don't think about enough, um, I suppose, which are, yeah, which, which is interesting. I'm not sure why. So you've discovered that for you, meetings is one of those things, right? That kind of can be a bit of a drainer. If you have too many meetings in the day, that can kind of drain your energy too quickly. And I think you're not alone in this. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of other people I've spoken with who kind of feel the same way about this. Um, are there any things that you feel give you energy at work? Yeah, um, I think doing things that I really enjoy um, my wife has kind of, uh, wrapped me on the knuckles for this a few times. There's, there are certain times I'm doing something and I really enjoy it and I don't necessarily have to eat. 
I can just go straight through. <laughs> I know I should. I obviously should. Yeah, that's... but this is this is going back to the point of 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 energy. You know, uh, if you're doing something that is zapping your energy, you need to eat. You need to stay on top of things. And by the time the day is done, you don't have the energy for the things that really matter, i.e., family, social life, and other things. Whereas if you are managing your energy well, you can do your work well. You can be a good husband, good father, a good partner, a good wife, a good spouse, whatever your additional role is to being an entrepreneur or a business person, you have the energy to do multiple things. And that's why maintaining the energy for, you know, your day to day is critical. But the things that give me personal energy is the things that I really enjoy doing. Um, Sometimes the topic of a meeting is a necessity to have, but you're not necessarily enjoying it. Not necessarily. Where at times there are sometimes you're having just a discussion with you and a, a colleague or you and a partner or someone that you really connect with and you are enjoying the discussion. Those types of things, you know, could go on for hours. And those are the types of things I enjoy. So when we are sort of running our accelerators and we have workshops and we're talking with founders about their challenges, going through different things, I mean, I love that stuff. I live for it. Um, you know, some people say to me, you know, are you going to have something to eat, break for lunch? I say, oh, I'll do that later. Uh, I enjoy that stuff. I love it. Um, and so those are mm. some of the things that give me energy. Um, it's just really doing the stuff that I love. And for me, it's, you know, working with founders, working with entrepreneurs, and I'm sure we'll get into that a bit later. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're going to, I'm definitely keen to to explore the whole journey. Uh, you've been on a fascinating journey so far to, to to where you are now, and I'm sure it'll continue to be um, super interesting going forward. But uh, bef before we do that, actually, you mentioned sort of the kind of the things that you love that you to do, the things that give you energy, like working founders and so on. I'm always curious to know from different people, um, sort of around what time did you start discovering those things? Or did you start becoming aware that, oh, wait a second, this thing actually, this gives me a lot of energy and I love to do this thing. And I'm maybe naturally also good at this thing. Maybe I've got some sort of unfair advantage here. When did you sort of start to realize some of those things in your life? Um, I, I, I was never really a super social person. I'm an only child. So... I grew up a bit shy, as they call it. I was a really shy kid. I had lots of friends, but I was never the loudest in the group. Um, I love, obviously, to hang out with friends, but I'd probably be known as the quiet one, if I'm if I'm completely honest. The, the wise one, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, sometimes I would love to think that, but I've made some really bad decisions in, <laughs> in life. But yeah, I, I try to be as wise as I can. Um, but growing up, I was, I was a pretty shy kid. And, um, I think when I got to my sort of early twenties, um, I started going to church and I think, um, the pastor at the time kind of spotted me as a bit of a quiet, quiet one. And I swear he used to give me these jobs and roles where he knew something about me and he knew that, um, maybe there's something in me that he wants to kind of keys out so uh, yeah. yeah he he wanted he wanted I think he noticed some things in me that I I was just was never going to be good at but he knew I would be I didn't think so but he knew um one of those things That's was brilliant. public speaking um I 
you're not getting me on a stage. No way. You're not getting me talking in front of people. <laughs> There's no way. Wow. Um, I would I would run a mile if you ever suggested I stand up and talk in front of more than two people. Um, but he um, said, you know what? We need someone to give the announcements. You know, um, we're doing this event on Fridays. Someone's parked their car in front of someone else or uh, we're doing we're going on this trip or we've got this event happening, you know, handed me a sheet of paper. Uh, would you mind standing up and just reading the announcements? And at the time, the church was about 80 people. And I came up with every excuse you could think of not to do this. <laughs> that is he was, brilliant. He was not letting go. He was not letting go. He was not having it. In the end, I had to just bite the bullet um, and um, do it. But I don't know what possessed me to do it in this way. So the first time I stood up and read the announcements, and I was probably in my very early 20s. I was a very young, probably 21, 22. So I was pretty young. Um, and I looked at the paper and I thought, okay, uh, I've got to take that, 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 that. And I memorized everything on the paper. I put the paper down and I got up and I just reeled off everything that was on the paper and wow. sat down. That's amazing. Um, I, it was the only way I could cope because I knew if I looked at the paper, I'd probably be reading and I didn't have confidence at the time to kind of read things off in that way. Um, or I just knew if I processed it all and did it in my own way, I could, I could, I could do it. Um, and I think everyone just looked at me like, We've never seen anyone do it like that before. Um, hmm. And from then on, the announcements was my job. Uh, and yeah. I did make a few excuses, but actually I began to enjoy it. I began to enjoy just being able to have a role that was, um, I guess, uh, that was my role at the time. It was something that I began to enjoy because I knew I was kind of overcoming something that had plagued me for a, a while. And when I look back on where I kind of got this fear from of, you know, public speaking and standing up, I think it actually happened when I was probably about 13. Um, I remember being in class at school and uh, we was in English class and we was reading. Everyone in the class was reading um, from a particular book. I don't remember what the book was, but everyone was reading from it, standing up and reading about a page. I could read pretty well. I didn't have a problem with reading. It just so happened that this particular page had words in it that I just got tongue tied and I didn't know what I was doing, where I was going and I just kept stopping and restarting. And the teacher said something that I remember to this day. And I think it's where I kind of got that complex and fear from. She said, you know, what? why don't you sit down and when you've learned to read, you can stand up and oh read. God. And for the teacher, it was a flippant comment, which I'm sure she probably forgot by lunchtime, whereas mm -hmm. it stuck with me for life. That's so bad. And so I grew up with this fear of speaking in front of people and, you know, uh, presenting in, in a way. And I knew that if I didn't take this role on, at this tiny little church in South London that the pastor had given me, I would never get over it. Um, and that's what I did for about a couple of years until, you know, I went on to something else, but through that, I then 
found my ability and my voice to be able to, you know, speak in front of people. And, you know, since that day and in my role now, obviously I speak around the world for, you know, governments, conferences, you name it. Um, Absolutely. And it's been a journey that I've been able to kind of look back and say, you know, I overcome and I overcame that through just the small little steps of having these little roles that at the time being a young kid, people saw in me and gave me an opportunity to overcome. May that that's uh first of all, that pastor is just an absolutely brilliant man for spotting that and and kind of, you know, getting that out of you. Cl- clearly he saw that you can talk and that you can do these things and just kind of maybe you were holding yourself back in some way because of something, right? And it's incredible to have figures like that in our lives that kind of like nudge us or push us in those ways. So yeah, hats off to that to that guy, uh, first of all. But the the teacher comment, man, that's just that's just not okay. I mean, um, sorry I had to go through that. Obviously, um, I, I you know with with hindsight and with the optimist that lives deep down in me somewhere, uh, it, it's always one of those things where I think, well, that happened for a reason, I suppose, because you know, lear- relearning something or going through the struggle and then coming out of it through your own effort, not just through your natural ability, is such a rewarding experience. Um, but, but nonetheless, still like going back, that's, that's something that I really hope the teachers today are kind of better trained on, uh, with, with that sort of thing, because you're right that it might be something that's very minor to someone, but you know, to the person on the other side of it, it might be actually quite a big deal. Um, yeah. so yeah. Um, but amazing. So, and then, and then, yeah. And then you never looked back, I suppose, after doing the announcement and, and then realized that actually, wait a second, I'm pretty damn good at this. It wasn't. I think you're right. It was definitely inside my head the whole time. And I definitely needed, I think like many people, an opportunity to prove that I could do something. Um, and it's, you know, looking back on it, I think, um, and even speaking to a number of, you know, close friends and colleagues, I think we've all been through something at school or when we were younger that kind of, you know, lives in the back of our head, but that we've had to kind of overcome. But um, I think it, I, I now see myself as having the opportunity and or having the ability to give people opportunities that maybe they didn't have or maybe that they needed to step up to different things. And now being in that position, like my pastor was, to be able to give people the opportunity to do something or build something or be something, I think is um, probably what's really turned that whole scenario around sort of 360 and and it's, it's a bit of a blessing for me absolutely man and and i mean you've be definitely given a lot to a lot of entrepreneurs and founders over the years and i suppose that's a good segue into it so um can, can you maybe walk us through your journey you, you've been a practitioner within the startup world for at least 10 15 years if not more um and you've done a lot of incredible work with a lot of incredible companies organizations governments and so on um, I'd love to maybe start by going through a bit of a sort of like a timeline thing of kind of the journey where it started and kind of where you are now. And then we're going to definitely pick on, uh, go deeper into certain bits in between. Yeah, sure. So, uh, when I was growing up, I, I, I had this, I don't know, I think we all fall in love with, um, certain things that influence us. For me, it was music and I, I sort of loved what went on in the kind of music industry over, 
you know, the late sort of 80s and 90s when I grew up, um, I remember being a kid and having chicken pox. I was about six, I think. And uh, I was laying in bed and all I had was this little radio by the side of the bed, but they would play some amazing songs like Motown, Marvin Gaye, Michael Jackson, all of that stuff. It was amazing. Nice. And I think that's probably what inspired me to want to grow up and work in music. I couldn't sing, so that was out. But I knew I had probably other skills growing up that I could lend to <laughs> working in the music industry. Does this mean you did try to sing at one point? <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm good at having a reality check with myself. So I, I knew that was never going to happen. Uh, so I went to college and I studied media with the intention of um, coming out and working in the music industry. The music courses that they did at the time was more about playing instruments and, you know, learning to sing. They didn't really have anything catered towards the music business side of things. So I did growing up as a kid, love the idea of kind of blending music and business. And so working in the music business side of things was the area that I wanted to kind of go in. Um, so I went to college, studied media. Um, in my opinion, I didn't learn a thing that I thought was relevant to music industry, but I was still hopeful. Um, we, we, you know, we learned so many other things other than what you might do to try to work in the music industry. So, that uh, were relevant uh, in some way in life or <laughs> looking back on it now? No, <laughs> not at all. I yeah. can't, I can't, I can't connect a single thing that I learned in media yeah. studies. Well, whoever designed that course yeah. program back in the 70s probably thought it was a good idea. So, <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it just didn't work for me. Um, and in the end, um, I don't even remember finishing the course, which is really bad. And I, I, you know, I have that on my record for, for life, not finishing college. I came out of the, um, studying media and I still wanted to work in the music industry. I was hopeful, I think. I mean, I had no experience. I had no applicable skills that I could think of other than just the love for music. I had no uh, qualifications. I had none of that. But I did have connections. That was the one thing I did have. Okay, I knew wow. a couple of people who worked in the music industry. So I just sat down with everyone that I knew and um, just talked to them about their experience working music. How did they get in? What do they do? Who do they work with? What's it like? All that kind of stuff. <clears throat> um, and so there was one person who I knew was a uh, music producer. Um, and he said to me, you know, you need to talk to this lady. She runs her own music management and marketing company. Um, I didn't know how well established and connected this woman was at the time. I had seen her pretty much every week because she went to that same little church that I went to and she sat there in the corner every Sunday and she was very unassuming, but this woman was mm. a powerhouse in the music industry. She managed some of the most successful songwriters in the country who wrote for some of the biggest artists in the world. She managed accounts for Sony, Universal, all of the record labels, wow, marketing a lot of their wow. UK acts, US acts. And I sat down with her and again, went through the same journey of, you know, 
what's it like working in music? What do you do? Who do you work with? Um, and you know, if I was going to work in the music industry, um, what would I need to do? She said, you know what? Um, why don't you drop by next week, Tuesday, I'll have you sit down with my assistant. Um, and you can have a talk with her and we can see what we can do. I thought, great, fantastic. So I went to this, what was a kind of mini, uh, meeting or interview, and it was probably my worst interview I have ever done. Every single question <laughs> she asked me was, uh, so have you ever worked in music before? Um, nope. Do you have any qualifications? Um, nope. Um, have you ever done this? Uh, nope. Every question she asked was no. And I could see her thinking, what am I going to do with this kid? <laughs> and I think at the time, I, I probably was about 22 going on 23. I don't think I was 23. Yeah, I was probably about 22. And I left there thinking, oh my gosh, how embarrassing. Uh, you know, what? let me just not make eye contact with this woman. <laughs> yeah. Let me just not make eye contact with this woman the next time I see her. But you know what she said? Uh, you know what? We're going to give you an opportunity. Why don't you just come in and work with us? Let's say whenever you like, um, however many hours that are good for you, you come in. That's, it was a bit uh, of an inter Yeah, that's incredible, man. Wow. What, do you know why they did? Do you, do you have an idea why they did that? I have no idea why. Maybe she saw something <laughs> in me that <laughs> she thought... Hey, I could bring answers. this out. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, um, I'm so thankful for her giving me that opportunity. Um, so I think at the time she probably imagined um, maybe I might stay for a couple of months. It was a bit of an internship. At the time, the laws around internship might have been a bit different. She paid me, you know, a little bit here and there, which... Oh, you actually got um, paid an internship. That, that's, you know, well, not what not, happens, not uh, like today, so... <laughs> yeah, not, 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 not like, um, not, not as an employee, but I, I got paid a bonus on sure. things that I did, which I think kind of encouraged me to do certain oh, things. Nice. At the time, I really didn't care. I think I was more in it for the opportunity to learn to work on different things, to work with different people. Um, I, I loved it. And I actually did it for not just a couple of months, but a couple of years. Um, just making sure I, I learned as much wow. as I could about the industry. And, and there's a couple of things that I really learned in terms of working there. So most of my work was kind of working on a lot of marketing campaigns, creating campaigns, thinking up how do we market, uh, you know, Beyonce's first album to the UK, which at the time, you know, this is showing my age going right the way back. Is that, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th I think that happened when you said, you know, I was a kid, only 21. I, I yeah, think we're yeah. way past that point now. <laughs> way past that. So I got to work on some really great stuff and I learned a lot and, and I didn't know at the time, but some of the skills that I really learned were very transferable. And so I started to get a little bored, even though I had always wanted to work in the music industry. I loved what I did. I loved the opportunities that it brought, but it became a little uh, monotonous in that um, it was, you know, how many more number one hits can you get to number one? 
that was our job to do the marketing for a lot of these acts and see how many people could I mean, listen to the sounds very exciting but yeah i can imagine it would eventually get repetitive but working yeah, on beyonce's on... first album mate that's, that's huge yeah on the outside it was amazing um but once you get into it you start to do the same things almost every day and i guess there was no real fulfillment in what i was doing no real i guess significance for me personally mm. for someone else that's their calling that's their role for me um it, it, i was looking for something more i think another reason to wake up every day and yes you know working on you know working with people like you know the sony team and universal on people like beyonce's album and launch you know their launch party and everything it was great but i still wanted something a bit more and this opportunity came up to be uh, an innovation program manager with the uk government and it sounded really interesting i you know they had this at the time it was like it was the labor government who was putting sort of one and a half billion into trying to make britain a bit more entrepreneurial how do we take some of the resources that we have in our communities like schools community centers um and turn them into centers and hubs for the community how do we turn you know the the school computer room into a learning center for parents how do we take uh, our community centers and turn them into training centers for young entrepreneurs and all that kind of stuff that sounded a little more significant to me and i thought i could go for this and so i did and funny enough um i got the job and i was an innovation program wow. manager for about 5 years working across government across the country working across local governments in the UK um help setting up you know designing these training programs these massive uh sort of capital projects where we're building new schools all of that kind of stuff that is what i found sort of really significant and i probably would have stayed until um i got headhunted um at the time yeah. by um an organization you probably know them startup weekend amazing this, and this that's was just yeah and this <laughs> was just before they got acquired by techstars um wow. and they were launching their first sort of startup weekend across the UK in London and they were looking for someone who had worked across both government education to kind of help them kind of tap into that world because that was what one of the first sort of themes of their startup weekend was education government public sector and so they said you know we'd love you to come on board and i said you know what it sounds interesting and that was my first introduction into kind of working in the kind of tech scene and the entrepreneurial scene this was around 2011 right at the kind of dawn of the kind of uk and exactly. london's emergence of as a tech hub and this sort of startup ecosystem what an exciting time what must i i wasn't there but what must have been a very exciting time to uh, to get involved with yeah it was brand new um, what was it? the scene was yeah. really young sorry go ahead it kind of uh, the i i, I want to carry on but i just want to quickly um mention one thing that and it's i've been out in in abu dhabi for the last two and a half months and one of the things about, about being out there and in dubai and in the mina region in general that's so different to being in the uk is the fact that it's an emerging market is the fact that 
all of these little ecosystems are still kind of budding and still very early stage out there. And there's such an exciting feeling to that that I can't really describe. And I'm just guessing that that's what it was like back then when you were getting involved with this stuff as well. Um, so, so yes and no. So yes, because okay. again, that excitement of something new um, and uh, something that we, we probably hadn't seen in this country before in terms of the growth of an ecosystem or something like a new Silicon Valley. So in that respect, yes, it was, um, it was great. But I think on the other hand, we didn't really know what was about to happen. We didn't have mm. that uh, frame of reference that maybe the Middle East and other emerging ecosystems have because we've now right. seen the growth of all these other ecosystems around the world. So you kind of know what you might want it was to shoot grow in the dark. at yeah. this point. Yeah, but yeah. back then, we didn't really know what this could become. We knew it probably may be, um, you know, something new. And, you know, I'll probably explain a little bit about this later, but we kind of knew that Silicon Valley was something that it could become. It could become a version of that, but we didn't really know what the kind of UK or European version of that would be, which is very different to Silicon Valley, even though it's a reflection of it. So at the time, it was just a lot of things happening, but certainly it was very new and very exciting. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That, that must've been a lot harder. I suppose now you have a few templates. You can try and pick whichever one you want and follow But back then there wasn't that many, right? Exactly. So that, yeah. All, all the more excitement, uh, with, <laughs> with the uncertainty. And I'd imagine you've become pretty good at working with uncertainty now that you've been doing this for years. So, okay. So you, you did that with Techstars, right? For, uh, well, well with startup weekend for a little while and kind of went into that world and tried to effectively create the Silicon Valley in London. Um, what were some of the things that you kind of learned from that? And then, and then maybe talk us through as well, uh, about sort of what, how that led into the next step. Yeah. I think some of the things that we were kind of learning at the time was, and it, it, it's still relevant to this day. Um, there's a different culture of how things grow in different parts of the world. So you know, the U S and Silicon Valley has its own culture about how things grew and continue to grow in terms of the Valley. Whereas here in the UK and certainly in London, which is where the kind of inception of our own ecosystem grew out of, um, it had its own culture. You know, the, the British are very conservative. Um, and even as a very sort of multicultural city like London, um, you still had its own challenges. And so some of the things that we were kind of learning at the time was, you know, how do, you know, not just what would our ecosystem look like, but what opportunities do we have? And what are the challenges that are unique to Britain and London that entrepreneurs could build things for to address? And a number of those things at the time was definitely around, you know, education, public sector, retail. Um, I don't recall even things like AI being even mentioned, even though, you know, at some point it probably would have been, but at the time it was just the very basic things, you know, the day-to-day -day things that we try to, uh, you know, do every day. So how do we 
communicate better with people? How do we, um, you know, find more opportunities and jobs for people? How do we work more efficiently? How do we get the best out of people? All of those things are things that, yes, the public sector is tasked with, but at the same time, the opportunities are there for entrepreneurs to disrupt at the same time. And so what that naturally kind of led into for me was um, thinking about how the structure of a program would work to help facilitate entrepreneurs coming together, working with different types of people from different sectors, different specialists, and how do they build something in that kind of program format where they can help then launch something at the end? Because at the time, the term incubator and accelerator wasn't as familiar at the time. It was just a program. Right. That was it. And also, how do you tailor it to that specific culture, which, I mean, you definitely moved on to do stuff in different parts of the world. And so that experience must have been really useful for you to kind of like understand how to tailor things to whatever's needed in that local area. So um it, it's so it's so weird to just think back of london to think about london in that sense but you know I've, being in the startup scene in london now it's it's like one of the top three in the world um i'm pretty sure according to the global startup ecosystem report which comes out once every year or two i think it's every year now um london's sort of tied with new york right as like the second in the world so there's silicon valley then there's new york and london and sort of tied together in terms of the strength of the ecosystem and so when this is the ecosystem that I'm kind of primarily involved in, I, I just can't imagine what it was like before that. And to think that it was like that not that long ago is is just insane. Yeah, so, yeah. and I think that's probably what's um, been, I think, London's great calling card is how quickly it has got there. When you think about it, 2011, 12 is not that long ago to for a startup ecosystem yeah. to grow to be one of the biggest in the world, and especially when you have um, other ecosystems around the world that are contained in much bigger markets, i.e., um, you know, the US, Asia, India, yeah. Africa, yeah. the rest of them. You had this. Um, it, it was built, I think, on the resources of other industries and other specialisms that definitely gave it the advantage you know england having a huge creative sector financial sector it being a a hub for all those things already and having its own kind of uh, cultural norms that actually lend itself to building a great ecosystem and i think all of those things played into the advantage and the speed of its growth over time which is fascinating because, you know, the UK is known for being quite conservative, as you mentioned earlier as well. And the fact that despite that, there was still the kind of the rapid growth and that that sort of didn't stop things is pretty incredible. Um, yes, yeah, so somehow maybe we thought, OK, let's keep conservatism to the to the banks and uh, and, and in the courtrooms. But when it comes to being out there and, and doing things from the creative side of things or the innovation side of things, let's just go crazy which is incredible. And and now, of course, craziness has gone into the, the finance world with all the fintechs. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but one thing you're right, definitely London has always had a, an incredible creative scene. And that's, that's it, it's been it's been really cool to have that around. And that's something that, again, I'm just drawing back on this because it's a recent experience for me, but it's something that I feel like is really lacking in some of these newer uh, emerging markets. 
Um, but back back to that. So um, Techstars, are you able, allowed to go into a bit more detail on how sort of that work went with Techstars and sort of how that acquisition came about and so on? With um, So, I mean, at the time I had left by then, so I wasn't around okay. when they were going through the acquisition of Techstars. Um, I was, again... Um, I, I started working with Google, um, and they you were, <laughs> it's not that I got bored. It's that I think what began to happen is, um, the more I learned working with a lot of, uh, startups working with startup weekend, you begin to see more opportunities. And at the time, again, remember, it's a very new scene. Everyone is starting to build a lot. I mean, I'll take you through the timeline in a minute of how things unfold, sure, sure, but sure, the sure. opportunities that came up, people were just building, people were building for the fun of it. People had this new breath of fresh air. It felt like in London in terms of, you know, the startup scene. And so, um, at the time Google were in partnership with a, a nonprofit called Silicon Valley comes to the UK. And the idea was, um, Great name. The, yeah, well, yeah, I suppose it, it is what it says on the tin. Um, they would, you know, bring uh, CEOs, CFOs, CTOs from some of the best companies in the Valley over to the UK to run workshops, um, mentor, support early stage entrepreneurs here in the UK, and then take early stage entrepreneurs, a group of them over to the Valley to see the world of these companies and how they run their day-to-day -day things. It was like an inspirational exchange mission, uh, in a sense. And so I worked with them for about six months to a year on that program. And I think that's when I began wow. to see again, the strength of how programs were integral to unlocking opportunities for the ecosystem. Again, mm. at the time, I don't recall incubators and accelerators being as uh, uh, freely spoken about as they are today. We probably had very few in the country at the time, but people were running these programs to help unlock opportunities for entrepreneurs. And I, I started working with them. Wow. And when do you think the term incubator accelerator actually is now that since we're on it, when do you think that actually became a, a term that's used here? So it was definitely, I think, between um, 2012, 2014, okay. uh, the growth of uh, accelerators started to happen. And, and, and that's when I started to really think about launching my own company, designing mm -hmm. and running programs to support entrepreneurs at the time. <clears throat> um, again, accelerators and incubators, in terms of the the... the familiar format that we have with, with them now, um, they weren't as sort of readily available to kind of explore and see and understand and unpick right. and untangle to build our own. So we just built things that we thought would work, that would be necessary. And, and they amazing. either worked or they did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You run the test and you see what happens, right? That's yeah. incredible. And so, um, around 2000 and 12, 13, I think that's probably when we started to see the kind of real growth. And one of the things that we just wanted to do was just run them to support entrepreneurs. But what we didn't kind of realize at the time is 
on the horizon was this incredible growth of the incubator and the accelerator model. Um, we didn't see that at the time. We just thought, let's just run these programs and see how they work. And we were able to kind of ride this really sort of big wave of um, the growth of accelerators and, and, and incubators as, you know, 2013, 14 happened. And we saw this incredible growth in this country of the was it, what would you say, by the way, is the distinction between them? And, and cause I feel like, you know, a lot of the time the, the phrases get used sort of back and forth incubator accelerator kind of as part and parcel of the same thing. Um, some people say that actually, you know, they're different things. Some, some say actually it's pretty much the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. would you say there is a real difference between the two? And if so, what is that? And when did that diversion start to happen? If, if, if it is there? I definitely think there is a difference between the two. I know that they can be used interchangeably by some, but there is a, a, a difference at heart in how they are defined. So an incubator is basically about growing new ideas from their inceptions. How would you bring teams together to create new ideas, build products, see what works, etc. An accelerator is once you've kind of figured out that something might work and you are ready to grow and scale it into the market, that's when the model of an accelerator comes into play. It's really about how do you grow the thing that you have or the thing that you've built through a process or a time-defined process, whereas an incubator may or may not have a sort of, uh, you know, a time frame. But definitely once you get to a certain stage, the accelerator model kicks in and then you can grow into a market with support of an accelerator program. Got it. That's brilliant. So yeah, it, it's good to hear that from someone who knows the stuff really well. Um, and then of course you've got the the rise of venture builders today as well, which uh, something we can touch on now or later. But that's a, a whole other <laughs> model in its own right, right? Yeah. So I think what's probably good at this stage is to kind of give you a bit of a kind of timeline of how you know, from working at Techstars and, and how not just yeah. me working in, in, in the kind of sector and, and ecosystem happened, but what started to happen around that and how that sure. brings us to kind of where we are now. So, <clears throat> you know, the UK has always had a history of entrepreneurship. Um, we have some great entrepreneurs from this country. So we've always been inspired to, to build companies. Um, but the idea of having an ecosystem that how it is today, that in some ways reflects a bit about, you know, what is happening in Silicon Valley in its own version here in the UK is still a new thing. Like I said, probably from about 2010 onwards. And that was kind of inspired because uh, our government has always kind of looked over the waters of what was happening over there you know, the incredible companies that were being built, the revenue that they were generating, the talent that they were able to attract, the reputational spotlight on the world stage that somewhere like Silicon Valley has. It's a very attractive proposition for any nation. And so our government thought, we want something like that here in the UK. And so at the time, the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, announced, you know what, we want to build a new Silicon Valley here in the UK, a new tech ecosystem that invites startups and entrepreneurs from all over the world to build companies and build, you know, the UK economy. And so 2010, 
um, they kind of earmarked uh, a region of London, Old Street, uh, Shoreditch, which was kind of rebranded as Silicon Roundabout. You see the play on words here um, as the kind of ecosystem and, and, and where things would grow from. Now, it wasn't just selected at random. Well, that's um, what I was going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. That area has a great history of, again, going back to where the ecosystem was being born from. It has a great ecosystem of geographic proximity of advertising and creative agencies, which at the time when you had this kind of new growth of these global tech companies like the Googles, Facebooks, um, Twitters, they had to respond to the demand for digital advertising. And so they themselves started to adopt a kind of digital agency model, which meant that you had this huge proximity of digital agencies in one area. And so the government thought, well, there's already a kind of tech scene emerging there. Let's promote that area as the area that you, you know, companies may want to again, join to build their own companies. And so around 2000, sort of 10, 11, a year after that kind of area was kind of promoted as the kind of new tech scene of London and the UK, you had about 200 new technology companies open their doors and begin sort of uh, servicing, you know, London and the world from that area. And so wow. you kind of get this feeling, actually, you know what, this might start to work. And so a lot of things were kind of provided in terms of, you know, certain tax breaks for, um, you know, office spaces and co-working spaces and all those things that would help facilitate sort of growth of the area. 2011, 12 rolls around and that number jumps from 200 to 5,000 approximately here. Wow, here. that's massive growth. So all of a sudden, this gets the attention of some of the larger incumbent tech companies, the Microsofts, the Facebooks, you know, all of these companies that have a presence here in the UK already, they now want to get in on the action. So they start funding and promoting their own types of, you know, hackathons and incubators to pull entrepreneurs together to see what they're building, see if we can get in on the ground floor to see some of these opportunities and, and get some of these, you know, new companies using our products. Google opens up its own campus. Facebook starts running hackathons and all of that kind of stuff and Microsoft as well. And so everyone starts to get in on the action. 2013, 14, you had this growth of the new brand of co-working spaces, the WeWorks and all of those mm. start to facilitate that area. 2015, happens and what you now see from 2014 15 and 16 is this huge growth of incubators and accelerators now they start to take on brand of models that you know help facilitate the growth of uh startups and the company or the organization nesta n-e-s-t-a it's an innovation non-profit here in the uk they started to track the growth of incubators and accelerators and where they were probably about less than 10 pre-2014 you know they estimated that between 2014 and 2017 that number grew to about 1700 
Wow. 1700 accelerators <laughs> and incubators God knows how many companies within those wow. exactly across the country so this is not just this has now grown from a tiny little spot in the east of london literally a little roundabout <laughs> yeah a little tiny roundabout to this huge network and ecosystem across the country so 2016 is approaching and people are now starting to think what impact is Brexit going to have on the ecosystem as a whole? Um, at that time, you probably had about, you know, 650,000 new companies started in this country every single year, which is an incredible number. Not all of them startups, not all of them tech companies. I Still, take though, that point. That Still, but that's incredible. Like the, the fact that there is that many people out there who are willing to start something new, yeah. that's just insane. And so things are growing really well. And so Brexit comes along and it has very little impact whatsoever because what we do know is that this government is not going to make it hard for people to come to the UK and start new companies. In fact, they're probably going to make it easier. Some things will get difficult, probably for the larger tech companies where they're trying to draw talent from different parts of the world. But certainly mm. for startups, you know, the two and three and four and 10 man teams where you are, you know, sourcing that talent locally, they're not going to make it very hard to, 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 to hamper that original mandate of wanting to build the kind of next Silicon Valley of Europe. And so that two th that six, 150,000 number of new companies dips slightly, but then it shoots back up almost immediately from 2017. And what we see is the kind of emergence of these new verticals where AI and fintech are starting to attract much of, you know, the venture capital dollar and pounds and euros from Europe. And what you see is this incredible growth happen to where, you know, today London is one of the largest ecosystems in the world and certainly the largest in Europe. It's absolutely incredible, man. And it's so crazy to think that all of this has happened over the last decade or two. Um, you, I, I don't think you realize that I, if you're involved in it daily, you kind of think, just take it for granted that, oh yeah, we have all these amazing accelerators and all these VC funds and so on. But to think that that only really came about recently, like, it, you know, I, I graduated university in 2016. And so it was really like even around then things were starting to kind of kick off or whatever. But I'm just thinking of when I was in college in 2012 and, and you're right. People didn't really have that language of startups. You know, what the hell is a startup? Who, who's going to go and work in a startup? It wasn't even a thing that you'd hear about, but fast forward to today and yeah, it's facilitating tons of jobs. Um, that, that I, I want to kind of touch a bit more on Brexit, but I'll touch a bit more on the VC side of things. So, um, maybe let's start with VC. So where, where do you think the money came? Like, where did the money come from to actually facilitate all of this? Was it VC funds from the US started pouring in or was it from, from Europe or was it actually just kind of London's own government funds that were kind of chucked into this to, to, to get it to, to start? But kind of like along that journey, do you have any idea of when things started to kick in? Yeah, so remember, as I mentioned earlier, it, the, you know, the, the ecosystem grew as a combination of already having of the uk already having a very healthy um creative and financial economy so yeah. you already have a very healthy creative sector that exports all over the world you know 
entertainment, music, advertising. It's a, a brilliant sector. Um, it, 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 it stands on its own. And then you have already the UK as a financial hub and certainly London definitely as a financial hub for the world. And so you already had a very strong investor base familiar with opportunities in London. And so you didn't necessarily need to um, make up any new stories of why investors would want to capitalize on these new opportunities. Because again, we've already had a great history of entrepreneurship and businesses being built. What you had was this new ecosystem and a different version of it, which you, it wasn't so much the demand that was, um, that was the issue. It was, it was mainly the supply. And what I mean by the supply was for the very first time, you had university students picking where they may want to study in the world based on the things that they would learn, i.e. universities running entrepreneurship courses. For the very first time, you had um, dropping out of university as a viable option and an alternative to that option of building a company. So before that, the idea of dropping out of and uni, okay, yes, you get this. very sexy sounding option. Exactly, exactly. So yes, you have, you know, entrepreneurs from around the world, especially we hear the stories from the US of people who have dropped out of universities to build their own company. Again, going back to that conservative nature of the UK, it wasn't a thing here in the UK, whereas it started to become a thing. You had a viable option of not wanting to go to university because you had this option of wanting to build a startup. Why? Because you had all of these other learning opportunities that were contained within the ecosystem. Entrepreneurship programs, incubators, accelerators, hackathons, all these things that provided the learning to help build your own company. And so it wasn't so much attracting the demand of mm. investment, it was actually, where's the supply going to come from? Yeah. Because the UK already has a very healthy investor base of, you know, stock market, everything else, and the opportunities to invest in so many other things. And you also have the uh, corporate investment that came as a part of that as well. So whereas a lot of VCs didn't really run their own accelerators and incubators. They were kind of run by the ecosystem and also by other corporate companies who saw the opportunity to work with a lot of these startups because they didn't want these startups to grow and be their competition three and four years down the line. So let's get in on the ground floor, provide them with product opportunity, you know, access to our networks and our customers sometimes funding as well. And so you had a very healthy investor base, even from corporate venture capital to help facilitate and build startups here in this country. Which is awesome. And also you have the, as you said, there's a lot of wealth in the country already. There's a lot of people that are involved in investment in banking and so on. And so um, the UK government then is smart and realized, you know what, ACIS, EIS, let's put in some tax benefits to investing in early stage startups. So yeah. Even even beyond all of that, which is that there's so much money in the in the corporate world and, 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 and so on. But let's also give individuals who have a lot of money incentives to invest a lot of money into startups over here, which 
worked like magic, I think, right? I mean, you, you can you can tell me you know better than I do, but to me, it seems like it worked like magic. Um, on um, on Brexit, so um, am I right to say, so when Brexit happened, were you still with uh, Weira at the time? Or was that, was it during that time or after that time? Um, it was... I, I joined Weira in 2017. So I joined I'm just really after sorry. Brexit had happened. Just before we, we go there, Weira, by the way, is uh, uh, an, okay, I might, I might butcher this, accelerator or an incubator. I want to say it's an accelerator <laughs> run by Telefonica originally, right? So Telefonica is kind of like the mother company and it's, and it's a branch from that. Uh, but yeah. maybe you can give the, the, proper, uh, <laughs> the proper explanation of what Weira is. <laughs> Yeah, um, so Weira Telefonica is um, the accelerator and innovation hub of Telefonica, also known as O2, the mobile network. The parent company of O2 is Telefonica. One brand of that is O2, and their incub or their accelerator brand that they have is called Weira. It's um, one of the largest, or at the time was one of the largest corporate accelerator networks in the world. Um, I believe it started off in, uh, I think it was Brazil moved to Europe, then to the UK in round about 2012, 14. And um, yeah, they had a presence here in the UK, focusing on accelerating early stage startups and scale ups. Awesome. And that's actually where we met. Um, yeah, uh, during the time that you were there, and I was there as well. Um, I, I was the, the reason why I was bringing it up, obviously, first of all, I want to dive a bit deeper in some of the work that you were doing uh, there with the different startups and so on. Um, but also, I wanted to touch on Brexit. Did, were you there at the time when, when sort of Brexit was happening? Were you still with them? Because I, I felt, to me, I kind of felt like, because it's a bit of a, it, it has a European element to it as an accelerator. I felt like Brexit had a bit of a negative impact on the general vibe uh, in, in the place. Did, did you kind of feel a similar thing or, or not? So I joined Weira in 2017, which was just after right. Brexit happened. Got it. Um, so as I mentioned before, I think the impact of Brexit was probably more on the larger companies than on smaller startups, whereas larger companies attract a lot of their talent from all over the world. And certainly a number of the the, 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 not the expected, but the possible new policies that might be introduced may, was thought that would make that harder to attract talent. Um, I think for some it has, for some it hasn't, for whatever reason, it just depends on the company. I think definitely for tech companies, it probably hasn't made it harder. Um, so the vibe I got when I joined in 2017 was probably from the backdrop of, okay, this thing has happened. What do we do now? What do we do next? And I think definitely um, Weira's position and the position of other companies was, okay, um, this thing has happened. We're not going to let it hinder us. We just need to adjust our footing and how do we kind of build forward? And I came just at that point to kind of Weira as an entrepreneur in residence, working with startups who from coming out of that saw it as an opportunity actually they saw mm. it as an opportunity to kind of just you know business as usual yeah and and that's the the, the main thing for me was around kind of the the talent side of things and i personally honestly was really worried that we're going to be a, we're not going to be able to attract talent but 
um, in for for startups, it hasn't really been a problem. Uh, you're right, as in at least that's my personal experience. There hasn't really been as much of a problem. But for bigger companies, I don't know. I haven't spoken to enough of them. Um, I know there are some sectors that were affected quite badly by Brexit, some more than others. Um, and one of the primary ones is hospitality, and hospitality was kind of really affected quite badly uh, by Brexit. But um, but kind of going to sort of pre-Brexit, post-Brexit um, thing, because Brexit is one of those things that gets talked about quite a lot uh, internationally when people kind of talk about the UK. So that's why I kind of want to address this, uh, this part as well. Um, going to kind of like pre-Brexit, post-Brexit startup VC life in the UK, were there any major differences that you saw other than what you've mentioned already? And do you, would you say that, you know, like did money increase? Investments obviously increased in the UK over time, regardless, right? Um, but, you know, do you think that, do you think if Brexit hadn't happened, for example, do you think would have had more growth or anything like that? Or do you think that actually it's one of those things that's happened, but everyone's just kind of kept cracking on? So um, <clears throat> there's a couple of things in there. Um, so the immediate impact showed a positive uptake in terms of the UK's ecosystem. And so what it began to do was hone VC capital into a number of different areas. FinTech definitely was one of them. It, it emerged as one of the sort of um, highest categories of attracting VC capital in this country. So you had the emergence of these great fintech companies, you know, the Monzos, the Revoluts, uh, all of these companies that um, yep. called it the UK their home. And so many fintechs started to grow as a result of that. AI started to emerge, even, you know, pre what we're seeing now with a new growth of AI. Um, oh, I yes. think a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the kind of early inception of AI companies started to attract a lot of capital uh, blockchain, uh, you know, deep tech, all of these companies, all of these sort of verticals started to attract a lot of VC capital. Mm. And you also saw a slight growth in um, the number of companies, or not necessarily a growth, it was, it, it went down during the kind of 2016, but then kind of came back up to its usual level of 650,000 new companies. The, the challenge is, we didn't have enough time to really understand the full impact of Brexit because it was only four years between the back end of Brexit and the beginning of the pandemic. Yep. <laughs> so you didn't really get a chance to see what the impact of Brexit was. Now, certainly Brexit plus the pandemic had its own impact on a number of areas, but what you didn't have was this clear view of, okay, unimpeded, what impact does Brexit have? Because the pandemic just came and threw all the pieces off the board. So you didn't really get a chance to kind of see. My guess is over the next couple of years, you probably might get to see as, you know, the, the pandemic is now hopefully behind us. You'll now begin to see, okay, what impact does Brexit have on some of the policies that will come out of, come out of it? But it, it is really interesting, you know, that you mentioned around the, the money sort of the, the UK thinking, okay, let's double down on the things that are going to make us really stand out in the future. Let's double down on deep tech, AI, fintech, which we're very good at already. So 
it's uh in, in that sense, I suppose you know it it it's good in that sense that the 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 country sort of thought okay let let's make sure we come out of this stronger, uh regardless of whether we agree with this or not, let's make sure we come out of the, come out of it stronger, which is really really cool. Um, pandemic, you, since you mentioned it, I mean I I, I didn't want to go into this, but I guess we're gonna have to. Uh, <laughs> but pandemic obviously had a massive impact all over the world on, on every single country. Uh, it's, it's such a, I, I don't think I ever truly stopped to think about how surreal of an experience it is for the whole world to kind of go through a, a shared journey like that. Um, for my personal experience, it increased productivity, um, for the first six to 12 months. And then of working from home, that is, you know, pandemic happened, everybody's now working from home. First six months-ish or whatever, insane productivity. You know, you can't go out anywhere. You, you just just work. I mean, you know, there's there's not much else you can do apart from playing a bunch of games online with your friends and then or whatever. So, you know, or of course, have a couple of illegal house parties, <laughs> uh, which I actually didn't have, funnily enough. I primarily just worked. Um, so I saw the, the shift to go from to home first kind of really increase productivity massively, at least for me and where I was working at the time. But then... It's the energy drain thing that you talk about where over time it's, it's, a, it's not a fast energy drainer, but it's a slow energy drainer of I sleep in the same place I work in the same place I eat in the same place I do everything. And then eventually it's a bit like, okay, well, you know, I kind of would like to have a bit of a break between those things. And especially for me, I like talking with people. And so going to the office gives me that opportunity. So I felt then productivity kind of generally, it went back to being sort of to pre pandemic levels, let's say. Um, and then things opened up slowly and people could go back and so on, which is really cool. But that's from my own personal experience. And every, obviously every startup is a little bit different, right? Um, at the time you were still working with multiple teams and, and helping in, in with multiple programs and so on. You're pretty much always involved with, uh, with multiple programs, which is really awesome. Um, but did you, did you see any shift in productivity, whether for better or for worse, when the pandemic hit? Um, personally and internally, yes. Um, with other teams <clears throat> in different ways. Um, and I think, I, again, this is probably a good time to kind of introduce the work we do at ADK and why I set things up and why it's so necessary and relevant to kind of this question. So, <clears throat> I want to take a jump back and I'll come back into this question around oh, the kind of productivity. Sure. So, um, having worked with a lot of programs, startup week, uh, not startup weekend, but yeah, startup weekend, um, Google Silicon Valley comes to the UK. I began to realize the, the, the value of the program model to supporting the ecosystem startups and founders. And so around about 2016, I began to kind of think of, okay, how might we take a lot of this experience of helping to build and design startup programs, incubators, accelerators from the companies that we've been working with and launch my own startup and company doing that. Um, but I wanted to do it in a slightly different way. And so there's a couple of things that I began I began to observe um, just from experience of working in the UK ecosystem, traveling to different ecosystems around the world, talking to people from different ecosystems around the world, 
because we began to partner with different organizations from outside the UK who were coming to the UK to kind of learn how we designed our programs so they could take them back to their own country and kind of design things for themselves. And um, so there's a couple of, I think there's a few key points that are really interesting about the kind of growth of the UK's ecosystem that and how that reflects what happened and what began to happen in Silicon Valley, which was as the ecosystem grew, especially around the east of London, um, it kind of triggered very naturally an increase in the value of that geographic area. Property prices started to rise, everything started to rise. And so what you began to see was this kind of inflationary mechanism of a tech hub, even though technology in itself inherently is deflationary. So, you know, people get cheaper services, probably even free services as a result of technology. But once you pull all of those companies together and the talent and opportunity into one geographic spot, it has an inflationary effect to it. And so the property prices started to increase just in that area. And so some companies started to think, well, why should we continue to pay these types of rents in this type of area? What's the opportunity cost here for staying in this area? And so some of them began to move out of that area of sort of Old Street, Silicon Roundabout into other areas. You saw fintech companies move further east towards Docklands, where it's our sort of standard London financial center, Barclays Bank, HSBC, Citigroup, all of their head offices are in Canary Wharf. You saw a lot of the fintech companies move that way. You saw a lot of the um, larger fintech companies kind of stay central around the Moorgate sort of area where you have Monzo's head office and others head office still there, Striper there. All of them kind of stayed there. You had a lot of the social impact companies kind of move further south. And you saw all of these kind of new communities start to pop up. But again, that inflationary kind of effect started to happen in all of those other places as talent and opportunity congregates in one spot. Actually, it starts to inflate certain things. But what you actually began to see is as other ecosystems around the world began to want their own type of tech hub, Silicon Valley style ecosystem, you saw the same effects start to happen, even in the valley itself, where people began to move out and congregate from LA and California out towards Texas, Miami, other places. And so what you saw was this kind of phenomenon of tech hubs being incredible for opportunities, for attracting talent, for growing companies, but they do have these unintended consequences to them mm. as well. Again, one of them is inflation. Two is barriers to skills, not opportunity. So they are great for attracting opportunity and talent. But if you don't have the skills to work yes. within you know, the tech ecosystem, in some ways, there's a barrier to it. Um, accelerators are looking for certain things. VCs are looking for certain types of companies that can return their capital over multiple years. If you're not building something that fits that model, you're out. 
And so not only VCs have that model, accelerators began to adopt that same model. Why? Because many of them began to be influenced by what VCs were able to invest into these companies. And so accelerators began to reflect that same thing. We are looking for this type of company. We want the company that's going to scale 100x to be whatever revenue a year company, ARR. We want this type of profile of company. And so you have people who are building companies that are serving their communities, serving their cities, may not be building the next big thing, but they're building something useful, but they themselves are slightly locked out of what is the conventional model of an accelerator and incubator, especially ones that are heavily funded and heavily resourced that can help them grow. They didn't necessarily get those same opportunities. And then you had this kind of third effect where as things become more inflationary, certain types of talent moves out geographically. So you don't have the same balance of talent and that could heavily impact on maybe certain types of communities who don't have access to talent, who don't have access to opportunities. And as we know, a huge amount of venture capital goes to a certain profile of founder again. So again, you had opportunities within tech hubs, but you also had these unintended consequences. And so mm. what we wanted to do with ADK is how do we build tech hubs, accelerators, and even the startups that join them to be more considerate of building things that support not just the norm of ecosystems around the world, i.e. we want to find the next unicorn, but how do you build companies that actually solve challenges within your city, within your community, that actually are there to have the greatest benefit to human life of people around you, but also to nations as well. That might not always look like the traditional and typical model of a startup. We hope that they would grow, but we don't necessarily need them to look exactly the same as what might be the next Uber or Airbnb or Facebook. They may be something very different. So if you follow that into the kind of productivity question that you had before, we saw a shift in productivity in a different way because I wasn't the only person who started to question, what am I really doing with my time? You had founders in our accelerators and in our programs that we started to ask those same questions. What am I really building? What problem am I really solving? Does that problem actually matter? And here was a fundamental question we used to ask, and we still do to this day. We ask in our accelerators of the founders who join, and they would ask themselves the same question. So the starting point for many founders is what problem are you solving? But the question we began to ask and they began to ask too is, what would be the impact if the problem wasn't addressed? Would it make a difference? You follow that logic right the way through. What's the impact of not solving a problem and the problem that your startup is designed to address? If nothing really happens, then so what? What difference does it make? But if there's this scenario that you can see unfolding that if you do not solve this problem, this is the impact it's going to have. That's a problem 
worth solving. That's a problem worth spending your time building a platform, building a solution for. And so we saw this shift in productivity towards problems that actually really matter. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Um, what a great question to ask as well of, you know, what would actually be the impact of it not being solved? Um, so yeah. And you, you said that sort of started happening more kind of because of the pandemic or somewhere around then, because people had a chance to stop and think about what they're doing there. Um, why did you start ADK? Was that the main reason? Yeah, I think, I think when I started it, it was mainly just because it was born out of my experience of working with a lot of, uh, ecosystem builders, whether they were corporate accelerators, incubators, um, different programs that were being run. I, th I thought I saw the need for companies and governments and funds and banks wanting to build their own programs and accelerators, but not knowing how that's how it really started, but it quickly mm -hmm. evolved within the space of 18 months to two years to thinking about the unintended consequences of growing a tech hub and actually thinking about all the other things that matter, not just building great companies, but how do you build things for your immediate community? How do you build things for your city? How does a nation think about the future of its citizens and its communities and wanting to unlock opportunities? no matter how big that nation may yeah. be. So if they're going to build their own tech hub, okay, how might they, how should they think about this? How should they think about all of the things that make an ecosystem an ecosystem, but not forget or not um, uh, push to the wayside some of the things that are still very important. And so a, an ecosystem is not just an anonymous thing. It's made up of all of the players within it the startups, the mentors, the investors, the incubators, the accelerators, the courses, the programs, everything makes up an ecosystem. And so what we really wanted yeah. to do is test different models of accelerators, hybrid models, new kinds of models that we thought could actually serve as a template and a blueprint for people that wanted to build their own programs. And we were very fortunate that we sort of stuck to our guns and said, you know, the only way this would work is if we work with really big players within different ecosystems, within different countries around the world. And so, you know, one of the first places that we started to kind of test this was at Weira. And I was fortunate enough to work with, you know, brilliant uh, people like uh, Gary Stewart, who's the then MD of uh, Weira, who kind of saw the need for this to kind of build accelerators that actually are diverse in their thinking and in their attraction for talent, but also diverse in their output and what they aim to address. And so that was kind of what we mm. started doing. And then very quickly, um, Airbnb saw what we were doing, kind of supporting Weira, and they said, you know, how might you do this for us as well? And so in 2017, we launched the Airbnb startup program here in London and was in the process of building that into multiple cities around the world before, of course, COVID hit. But we're still on that journey, uh, sort of with them. 
Um, we, cool. yeah, and so I've been designed and launched other accelerators with companies around the world since then. I'm, I'm going to come on to the Airbnb and the where things in a second, but first of all, shout out to Gary, incredible human being, um, had the pleasure of meeting him a few times when he was at where, uh, he's now, uh, MD Techstars, if I'm not mistaken, right? Techstars, New York. Uh, they're running a great Techstars. program out there powered by uh, JP Morgan. There we are. Um, I will bring him on the podcast at some point, have a chat with him as well. Definitely um, a great guy he's have, a very, yeah. very, very inspiring person, uh, in many ways. Um, so with, uh, with, with, with what you were saying earlier on about the, um, the, the businesses that people build within cities that might help everybody around them, but are not necessarily going to be billion dollar companies. How do you support those and you get more investment into those? It's such, such an important thing. such a key thing. I think there, there is such, um, such a hurry to chase billion dollar companies and unicorns to get the most bang for your buck and the general sort of, you know, the general way that it works with startup investment tends to be, you know, invest in a hundred sort of a few of those will become unicorns and make most of the money. A few of those will do okay. And then the rest will fail. And kind of like everyone just kind of accepted that and it's kind of just rolling with it. Um, but then the other thing is that it, when chasing a unicorn alone, very often there is no stopping and thinking, what does this startup, what kind of behavior do we actually drive by through this? You know, our, and you know, there's this whole, there's a question going around quite a bit uh, around kind of within, within VC circles of, are we just funding over consumerism? Are we just, are we basically just funding people's bad habits to try and grow these companies and get them to whatever, you know, by chucking a lot of money into, I don't want to name any specific companies, but chuck a lot of money mm -hmm. into companies so that they can take that money and give people discounts so they can overconsume. you know? Um, so yeah, what, what, what you're working on sounds really cool, but it sounds to me like as well, how do you kind of move away from that model or at least incorporate other elements that are more beneficial overall in the long term for everyone? I suppose yeah. that's what you're working on, right? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, um, I, and I don't have the, I don't have the answer because everything is yeah. still fairly <laughs> new. <laughs> everything yeah. is still fairly new. We just have like everyone else, a thesis of what we think might work, what we think is necessary. Mm. And so that's what we're building towards. But when you look at it again, with the exception of Silicon Valley, every other ecosystem in terms of the model of ecosystems that we're building today, all of them are still fairly new, less than 15 years old. They're all teenagers, yeah. if you think about it. And yeah, so we, do, the, we don't very, know. That's a really good point. Yeah. We don't know the impact yeah. that they're going to have over the next 20 and 30 years in terms of the influence of capitalism combined with startup ecosystems. At the moment, they provide brilliant opportunities, talent, um, technology, which, you know, to some degree supports some of our day-to-day -day life, even though, yes, again, there are some unintended consequences about technology, which is a whole nother discussion. It's a whole other discussion, absolutely. Yeah. But at the moment, we don't know what real impact it's going to have. So we can't really know what the answer to it is yet. But what we can do, which we have been doing, which I've been doing for the past sort of six years, is just stepping back and looking at it from a slightly uh, bigger picture and looking at 
what are the, again, the unintended consequences of building these ecosystems, which I have been a part of as well. I've been as much a contributor to helping to build and grow, you know, London and the UK's ecosystem over the last, you know, 12 years as, as many people have, but at the same time, um, not to continue to blindly build what we think should be, but think about, okay, what, and, and this is a great quote, I think from, um, the late Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft, very simple quote. He said, what should exist? <laughs> And that, that sits with me, you know, what is it that should exist? So when you think about how our ecosystems have grown, the talent that we are trying to attract, the companies that we are trying to build, if you stop and think for a moment in all of that, what should exist? And we have a few theories about, and I do personally, and as I, you know, talk to people who eventually I begin to work with, you know, people like yourself who I connect with and have known for quite a while now about the different things that should exist. Everyone is now starting to step back and think about, it's not just about social impact or having, solving a problem with technology. It's actually thinking about what really should exist. I think much more support for founders should exist and by support i mean not just support in building companies support in just their personal journey and the stress they go through every single day that they do not disclose what's even even to their partners <laughs> you know the stress of building companies is tough it's a it's a mm. it can be a it can feel like a very lonely journey even though you have what seems to be great support networks around. You have all these different events, big teams, networks, you know, mentors, you have all of this stuff, but yet still we have more founders than necessary suffering from burnout and suffering from mental health challenges that they don't necessarily disclose. And when I think about how you know, when I think about the kind of programs that we design for companies around the world, for companies around the world that end up as accelerators that aim to support and build companies and change ecosystems and help grow the future of nations, I'm thinking about how do you build in all of the different support systems into these things and not just admire all the shiny things that can come along with it. And I read every day about all of these countries that are hoping to build, again, their next Silicon Valley, their next um, tech ecosystem. But the problem is, okay, let's look at the first one and let's say, has, has the blueprint worked as it should? Mm. Before you start to copy the thing that you want to copy, well, let's look at that blueprint and say, what should have existed? What should exist? And I think so, if you stop, yeah. No, no. So I, I was going to ask there. Um, it's a tough one because they certainly have driven GDP up. So GDP has grown. Okay. Let, let's, I mean, for, for most of where these tech hubs, the massive tech hubs have gone, you know, it, it's, it's grown prosperity for many, many people. 
And you could definitely argue that it's grown prosperity for many individuals that probably wouldn't have had those opportunities. And it's, you could probably also say that, you know, they've, they've made life easier, better. They've democratized services and goods to people that maybe wouldn't have had the same level of access before. Um, we can all now wear a thing around our wrist, if we can afford it, of course, that helps us track everything about our stress and energy levels and so on, which might be very useful for us. Hopefully, it will become more and more democratized, better and better priced over time so more people can access it. There are so many things that is driven that are incredible. And <clears throat> that's one side of the coin, right? Uh, well, not a coin, rather. That's one side of, of the of the argument. The other side of it is that um, if you are if your mission or if your goal is to build an ecosystem, let's say for a specific country or a city or somewhere, um, you've and, and you're you're the operator that has been assigned, you know, build that right. Find everything you need, all the right people. Here are the resources. Build that. Obviously, the people that are supplying the resources are looking for certain things in return for supplying those resources. And so you're under a lot of pressure of, you know, well, we better grow fast. We better follow the best practices. We better do blah, blah, blah. So, and since the other models have worked in many ways, how do you then convince that operator or how do you convince the the investors or whoever it is, however high up you can go in the chain, I suppose, but how mm -hmm. do you convince them to think, okay, you know what? No, we're, we're going to stop and think, especially when you are a government or a city and you're effectively in competition with so many other markets around the world mm -hmm. that may not take that same viewpoint. Yeah. So the idea is not yeah. to not do the things that, you want to do because that they have they will have some um uh flip side impacts the idea is to consider from the outset what some of those flip side impacts might do might be and build into your model contingencies <clears throat> and support systems for that so i think we are probably now getting to the point and i say probably now because i think you probably <clears throat> are beginning to see and read more about it that gdp is beginning to be a poor indicator for i mean it's one indicator so it's yeah it's yeah. one indicator but it's also but but it seems to be a heavily weighted indicator but it's still a very poorly heavily weighted indicator around the prosperity of an entire nation you still have fundamental challenges that happen in any country with increasingly with increasing gdp and there are still some fundamental challenges that need to be considered so when a country is thinking about wanting to open up opportunities within their cities their communities their regions their neighborhoods by building either large regional tech hubs or um, local tech hubs, there are some other things to consider in there 
not just the amount of investment dollar it can attract, but also what opportunity does it bring for the people who are already there, not just the people you're trying to attract, attract from other cities and other regions around the world, but the people who actually live there and reside there. Um, over the long term, what will it do for your youth? What will it do for education as a whole? What will it do for um, health and all these other things? Um, I heard a sort of great quote the other day that looked at the difference between growing and growing established tech hubs and emerging tech hubs. And, you know, one of the differences is <clears throat> with growing tech hubs and established tech hubs, you're trying to figure out how to improve something. Whereas with emerging tech hubs, you're often thinking about, well, how do we create something that probably has never existed before? And that's where you have the opportunities. That's where you have the opportunities to learn from all these other people and all these other players and all these other ecosystems around the world who are doing great things. But you can say, actually, you know what? We see something very different for our nation. These are the things that we want to build. We see something very different for our community. These are the opportunities that we want to bring. And yes, we have this conflict between trying to attract resources and trying to serve the, the biggest challenges but at least if we start out with the right balance of perspective we can figure out how to address this without actually just leaning ourselves more towards the capitalistic side and saying well let's just do this but then not really paying attention to the impacts that happen after many years and that's what we kind of want to do we want to build these models that actually show a different way of kind of people learning, having access to these opportunities. How do we um, solve some of these challenges that we're aiming to solve, but, you know, give people the opportunity who may not have had the opportunities before, just through trialing different models, just through trialing different ways of maybe acquiring those resources, different partners involved. That's kind of our thinking and our thesis of how we're kind of, building forward that's absolutely brilliant man. i love it. it you're basically what you're saying is that you have a chance to build something that's way better than what has already existed yeah so why just copy what exists why why exactly. not just actually take the best leave the worst and improve and do better yeah whereas we may not absolutely. have had we, we didn't necessarily have that opportunity because there were only a few ecosystems around the world or let's be fair not many you had you know the valley and the uk Two? and maybe some others yeah exactly yeah. you didn't have this opportunity to <laughs> learn what worked well and what didn't now we have that opportunity we have so many because we have so yeah. many around the world to kind of see but, but, but we still have yeah. many years to go but you're so right as well it's so early like if you really think about it it is an experiment that's been running for one or two decades at best <laughs> and we just have a few different examples i mean you know we it's been running in the US for a little bit longer. And then you've mm -hmm. got some data on what happens when it runs for longer. And it's been running in the UK for a little while now for about a decade or so. And we now have some data of what happens when it runs here mm -hmm. for that much, that long. And mm -hmm. you're now seeing it across different parts of the world. And But everywhere tech hubs go, one thing certainly does happen. Massive gentrification of the neighborhoods and uh, just just increase in the, the, the cost of living just goes up massively. 
in the US, it seems to me that in those areas, salaries have caught up. Uh, but in the UK, perhaps it hasn't. However, if you're not from that area and you're not earning those salaries, then best of luck doing anything there. Uh, yeah. So, so, so and, and, tough. And that's it. How do you how do you build things for that reality? It happens. Yeah. It's it's a con. It's it's it at the moment. It's built into the model. It it seems mm. to happen. It shouldn't be, but for some reason, it is. It's just cause and effect. So then, how do you build things for that reality going forward? And yeah, that is just that, it. That's that's a really good point. Um, are you able to mention some of the awesome things you're working on right now with with ADK? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> as I mentioned, we are still running the Airbnb program, and the idea behind that the Airbnb sort of startup program is um, the company itself has been born out of giving people new experiences. You know, the founders set up the company to help people explore the world and belong anywhere. And so the program that we sort of started with them back in 2017 was to really explore, okay, entrepreneurs are part of that journey. And people who want to build startups are part of that journey. And London is, again, one of the biggest and most attractive hubs in the world for that. So for entrepreneurs who travel to London, how can we introduce them to a program that helps them understand the journey of an entrepreneur, help them figure out what they want to build, and then support them when they go back to their home city to build it for their home city or for their country or for the world. That is just basically the bottom line of that. And, you know, it's been going really well since 2017. Really cool. It's grown, it's grown to, I think, uh, more than 700 entrepreneurs from 160 different cities around the world have joined the program. Um, and every Incredible. year it just gets better and better. Um, the other program we're running is with, um, is sorry, quick. Edinburgh University. Quick question on that one. Sorry. Is it, is that one, um, is any sort of specific kind of thesis or anything like that with Airbnb one? Uh, is it like, or, or is it kind of fairly diverse in terms of the, um, as long as the, the ethos is there, is it fairly diverse in terms of what types of startups or types of entrepreneurs, or do you tend to focus on certain areas more than others? No, it's completely sort of sector agnostic, no particular thesis. The idea behind it is, um, Again, it's think of it more of a cultural learning program. So how do you take the lessons from, again, an ecosystem that has grown really well, like London and all the resources that it has, and you help people from other countries to tap into that, but then take those lessons and those learnings back to where they're from and build and support them to build whatever area you want to go in into their home country. Yeah, whatever area they want to go into. And that's pretty much and it, that may evolve over time. <laughs> <laughs> that very well that very well may evolve over time as we learn more about entrepreneurs. But it's been an incredible learning journey for us to work with the company as well. I mean, since we've been working with them, that's what's helped facilitate our growth into other countries because we get to learn so much and get connected with different people. You know, not just entrepreneurs, but corporate managers, you know, 
CEOs of companies from all over the world. And that's what's helped our growth into other countries as well. So it's been a great learning experience for, you know, myself as well. Amazing. Um, we are currently supporting Edinburgh University's AI program. So we're now on cohort seven of that. So for the past, oh, I think four years, we've been supporting Edinburgh University's AI program. Um, which is a brilliant program for any uh, founders who are listening, who you're, you know, today you're building the next great thing in AI. And so we usually have different themes um, for each cohort. Lately, it's been uh, AI for good, health and climate. Um, but generally, you know, applications and anything is worth, you know, submitting because themes change and, you know, it's great to have a bit of an insight into what people are building, but the program runs for about six months. Um, you get sort of a, a grant for traveling and participating in the program as well. Um, no equity. So it's a great, again, alternative to That's nice. programs that are out there, but focused on AI. Yeah. Um, really cool. And great um, support from mentors any, like myself and others. Yeah. Any particular stage that you uh typically go for uh so definitely post mvp um so you know early stage but post mvp um at least have something to be able to you know serve customers with at this point now when you say ai maybe we can take a very quick tangent we've taken lots of tangents today and i love it um maybe one one another very small tangent here um, when you say AI in this case, um, obviously now that we have these all these developments with AI, um, I was having a conversation with um, um, uh, guys from Silicon Valley and uh, had had, a, had the incredible opportunity to speak with one of the uh, very very early developers at OpenAI, uh, who was working with them from kind of very very early on, um, and we're talking about this this basically like layer one versus layer two AI. Um, so, you know, you've got these large language models and all these deep AI, these neural networks that are say layer one AI effectively, which is kind of like, you know, it's a, it's an actual deep AI that is, takes lots of money to build and lots of time and so on, incredible expertise, but then you can have all these newer AIs now that are built on top of these AIs sort of like, you can think there's layer two mm -hmm. AIs. Um, do you um do you with when you say AI in 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 this case or even when you say AI generally now within the kind of you know accelerator world or the VC world or the or the or the startup ecosystem world, do, do people tend to generally differentiate between the types of AI now or is it still kind of just general? You just say AI and it's AI sort of thing. I think you're now beginning to see this difference that you speak up speak of in terms of differentiating between the sort of layers of AI um, and all of the different sort of aspects in which um, it's, it, the technology is applicable. So you're now beginning to see this kind of divergence in how, in, in terms of what stage or layer in terms of AI. And I think we still have a number of, of those sort of category of AI, even to come, you know, the, the mm -hmm. large incumbent tech companies are now beginning to roll this out into different aspects of their existing product lines and uh, business models. And so 
I think one of the things that we are trying to get um, founders to kind of move away from is platform dependency. So where you're building or, or what you would call crop sharing, that, that sort of uh, term where you're building something that is dependent on another platform. Because at any point, these companies can take a left turn and render what you're building completely irrelevant. So yeah. we're, we're, we're looking at sort of base level building of AI and products and, th- and applications to it that, again, going back to that, what difference does it make? And so you can have, again, mm. multiple different applications to a whole world of AI. And where previously and historically, it would be great to have, you know, certain AI for productivity and different types of little apps. We're now going back to some fundamentals. So hence the reason why these massive themes like AI for good, health, climate, where you're actually thinking, okay, what real difference does the AI make? And is AI actually necessary Mm. in order to solve the problem? Yeah, and that's a very good question. Is AI actually necessary to solve the problem? Yes. Um, Yeah, I think it's one of those things where, you know, there seems to be a lot of money going into AI now. And so if you slap AI on whatever you're doing, uh, generally it might make you look a bit more attractive and uh, it's a temptation that's there. But yeah, if AI isn't actually needed and doesn't actually solve a problem, then then there is no point, right? Um, Awesome. So those are some of the things. Um, You've been with Airbnb, working with Airbnb in this program for a little while now, right? Um, so that means you've been with Airbnb uh, yeah. pre-IPO and post-IPO, right? Okay. Um, did you were you still working with them while they were going through the IPO, and did that affect your program at all in any way? Or, um, in some ways, yeah, it 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 did. Um, so, I mean, it was because obviously the IPO kind of uh, converged with the pandemic as well so there was a couple of things yeah. that is quite public the company was challenged with in terms of the drawdown or downturn in terms of how people would use the platform um so you saw a lot less international travel and much more of a focus on internet on on local travel um of course with any public company you have to be much more considerate of spending and also output in terms of just you know things you say and things you do so there were some things that um you know whereas before we had lots of liberty with the team the team by the way are absolutely brilliant the uk team i got to meet uk team us team and a number of people they are absolutely brilliant um they have a great philosophy of how they approach things that was a huge learning curve for me That's really cool. um, and for others any, that any, I've worked with. Any, any lessons um, there that you can share with founders listening, maybe to help them with building a great company? Yeah. So um, one of the things that they um, do really well, I think, is how they turn data into product upgrades, I think. Now, of course, that's just a norm, what we should do anyway as as founders. We should also be you know, listening to what our customers are saying from a qualitative point of view and looking at data in terms of our dashboards and what's telling us in a quantitative point of view and making decisions about how we improve our products and serve our customers. 
um, they have an entire website, which I can't remember the name of it now, but if you search it, I think it's like Airbnb science and engineering or data and engineering, where they, they, they give you this incredible resource of all of the tools they use, why they use them. Um, it's almost like what? building in public for a public company. And the amount of insight that it gives you into their rationale of why they use certain things, why they don't do certain things, why certain products um, they go with, why they iterate certain products, how they do it, I think is something that every company should do personally. I know not every company has the resource, but at the same time, Airbnb is still is not the biggest company in the world, but still they do it. And I think it's a great competitive advantage when you have that depth of not just um, data that you look at to make decisions, but that you know other people can look at and get feedback from other people on the data that you're looking at to make decisions. That for mm. me is brilliant. Mm. So, Absolutely. you know, if you think about it, we make decisions based on certain information that we have, but what we often don't do is disclose publicly the information that we're looking at to make that decision and then double check that with others to say, am I looking at the information the right way? Am I making decisions in the right way? I think that's that, brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And building in public is one of those, is one of those hot topics as well. You know, it's been popping up more and more and more people are trying to do, it, which is really cool. Um, easier said than done, but incredible thing to be able to do it. It's one of those things I've kind of been trying, I've been exploring for a little bit to kind of think how we could do it. But one of the main challenges I have around that is honestly, it's a time constraint, uh, more, more so than anything else. And so one of the things that I feel like personally, as a founder, I need to get better at is how to tie it into the process of building so that I make smaller decisions. So it becomes less of a time thing and more of actually this is built into the way we build stuff, if, if that makes sense. Um, which is mm. a bit of a shift in uh, kind of the way that, that you work. So a couple, couple second to that, they have a great approach to how they, um, build internal communities. So you probably may not know this, but Airbnb in terms of it's not just, yeah, in terms of its host community are all part of some kind of community or network locally in every single city around the world. And so what they would have are what call these sort of host events networks. They would run these internal kind of days for their hosts where they, you know, pull them together, hear what their challenges are, how can they make things better for them? And then, you know, um, build the product to make it, uh, serve both them and customers better. I know a lot of companies have communities, but these are real world communities. This is like, you know, wow. we're going to bring our communities together. We're going to, you know, and if effectively, you know, Airbnb is powered by entrepreneurs and what they, what their intent is, is the way they put it is how would they build what's called a Netflix for the real world? 
You probably mm. may not have heard that statement before with regards to Airbnb, but that's how they kind of see it internally. And what that means is in much the same way we sit at home and we flip through the latest films or series on Netflix online to entertain us, they want to be the same thing for the real world. How can I flip through all these different opportunities of where to go and what to do all around the world and say, I want to do that and go from one to the next, to the next, to the next Netflix That's for beautiful. the real world. That's yeah. what they're aiming to wow. do. And so again, having the opportunity to have an entrepreneur, entrepreneur program that serves entrepreneurs that are building in one city, but can learn from another. That was a very interesting model that they sort of reached out and said, you know, what, what would a model look like for us? And we had a complete blank canvas of how to work with them and just experiment because again, they have a philosophy of how do we do something that doesn't scale, see what works and then scale what does. That's really cool. Wow. That's incredible. So you've obviously done so much work across so many different countries now, uh, across the world. Um, how, how many countries total would you say that you've worked with, um, kind of for different programs? 23. 23. And, yeah. um, you know, without picking favorites, uh, if, if there are some, <laughs> some founders listening to this who are, um, keen to be part of more of an emerging, uh, market or more of an, a young market or a young play, um, place. So kind of looking away from the London's and the Silicon Valley's, um, are there any that stand mm -hmm. out to you in particular as like, you know, they look really promising and it looks pretty awesome to kind of be a part of that early on. Yeah. So, um, I, I, one we that i I've, I've been trying to work a lot more in middle east and africa and so a lot of conversations i'm having which i've never had the opportunity to travel to the middle east yet but i do want to um a lot of stuff's promising in in that region of the world however one part of the world that is i've been working with for the past uh year now um Rwanda has an incredible appetite for building their own ecosystem. They, you know, we've been running a series okay. of sort of workshops and support, um, sessions in Rwanda to kind of tease out what would the country need to help it build the next version of its own ecosystem and the, the feedback and engagement there has been absolutely incredible given the, the amount of resource that they have. They definitely have a hunger and an appetite. So uh, for as much as I think Africa is going to be a really huge cool. player on the world stage, um, I'm not looking, mm. and I don't think anyone is looking at the continent in isolation. It's made up of its own countries with their own cultures, their own um, uh, political influences and uh, differences. But Rwanda has an incredible yeah. ecosystem that I think over time is going to prove itself because of just their eagerness and response to build something brilliant. That's really cool. Any any particular industries or verticals that are kind of tend to be uh, taken off or more? Kind of, I know that, for example, um, in many African countries, including Egypt, which is obviously where I'm from originally, um, transport, transport tech is, is one area that tends to see a lot of innovation, um, 
is there are there any particular verticals or areas where you're seeing a lot of innovation in Rwanda, or is it kind of generally across the board? So interestingly, uh, retail tech, e-commerce, and fintech are starting okay. to really emerge because obviously as technology evolves new opportunities to serve customers in everyday life um is is appearing to be the kind of first focus of what um entrepreneurs are looking for and so they're looking at just the day-to-day -day life and what do we need in terms of uh e-commerce um fintech health tech the, the 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 foundational kinds of services that would be needed in yeah. any economy and the technology is what is looking at transforming those particular sectors and verticals first i think before we get onto any of the i don't know the additional sexy stuff like ai and deep tech and all that kind of stuff of course of course yeah it makes a lot of sense um, one area as well where in in some emerging markets uh, it, it is really kind of being focused on, which I find really, really cool, is agri-tech. Um, agri-tech is just one of those areas where a lot, I think a lot of work needs to be done. You know, we have to continue feeding the planet somehow. Uh, yeah. And this is, uh, yeah, it's an area that has been kind of, yeah, it's been dry, grabbing more and more of my interest lately just because there are so many innovations, so many things that we can do there. I, I'm I'm and a huge, happening actually. I'm a huge fan of um agritech and I think it's one of those um it's one of those verticals that needs a lot of support because you are up against some really huge competition. And even the technologies that are being um launched to support existing um resources within that sort of uh, sector, I think, still need a lot of support. Um, I was hmm. sad to hear that one of my favorite startups in that space um, had to kind of close its doors during the pandemic. I'm not sure if you were aware of a company called, um, oh, what was the company's name called? Um, oh, it's gone, sorry. It'll come back to me in a minute. That's okay. Um, but but they, yeah, yeah, they were sure. part of they were part of Wayra's cohort, yeah. um, and mm. they um, were brilliant at what they did. They uh, their th th their aim was really to help farmers communicate better about challenges that they had on their um, in their farms and how they could help address certain challenges with crops, um, prevent crop failure and um help them build their own networks and very cool. sort of solve challenges so um yeah it would brilliant they'd raise yeah. uh, quite a bit of money as well but for whatever reason it didn't work out that's unfortunate it happens sometimes with with startups and there are so many factors that go into it so yeah it's it's never as simple as uh could did you remember the name we farm go on yeah we so farm. We, <laughs> we farm had built a brilliant uh, sort of platform and network that started off as a text messaging service to help facilitate communication oh, wow. between farmers where historically they weren't necessarily, they didn't really have a way to communicate over long distances, challenges that would exist on their crop, but that may um, spread to other um, farms, you know, maybe pests or different things that would appear where, you know, 
then with the help of this network, they could just simply take a picture and say, you know, what is this challenge? And a farmer from down the road would be able to say, I saw this on mine. This is how I solved the problem. This is what you use to treat it. And, you know, a farmer could solve the problem there and then get it wow. done and, and uh, um, over with. And it then they built in this brilliant model where they were able to predict on a kind of seasonal basis, what some of the challenges might be across farms, across large territories, which is, you know, for a farmer who's trying to manage their farm and their, you know, their, their produce is a huge um, opportunity. And this goes back to the earlier uh, point that I made earlier. What's the impact of not solving the problem? Exactly. And, and so for yeah. a product like what we farm had introduced the, impact of not solving that problem is if a crop fails and it you know destroys you know 60 to 50 percent of you know what they're aiming to um grow in say a year or a season it has an impact not just on them but it has an impact on their community it has an impact on the wider ecosystem and the wider economy if this happens across multiple different farms it's a massive impact but if you can introduce a product that helps farmers communicate better about what some of the challenges are, how to prevent challenges before they happen, it becomes um, a great way to, to mitigate against some of the risks of running and managing a farm. And I thought it was a brilliant product. And for me, it's an example of the types of solutions that you hope to see um, built in that kind of space. Uh, but of course, you know, for whatever reason, it, it, it didn't work out. No, uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it's such a simple solution and it makes perfect sense that, yeah, you see a problem, let the others around you know about it and then hopefully they can avoid it and everyone, mm -hmm. everyone wins. So it makes perfect sense. Um, I've been seeing as well, some really exciting stuff crop up around, you know, like putting, um, letting plants speak to you through signals and tell you what they need, whether they're lacking iron or what well, iron, like, but, but, you know, um, what do plants need? Calcium, maybe but some, some minerals, they need some minerals. <laughs> I don't know what they need, but you know, it can basically tell you like, you know, I'm lacking sunlight or I'm lacking water or I'm lacking whatever and communicate back with the, whoever is kind of managing the, the, the area so that mm. you know exactly what they need, which is really cool. It's kind of like the same idea of, sticking patches on our bodies so that we can better understand what we need and what we're lacking yeah. and now do something similar with plants. I can't remember the name of the company, but it, it's super exciting stuff. So I think that's a brilliant example of where, you know, the applications of AI can come in is where you can point a camera exactly. at a plant and then say, okay, what is this cam What is this uh, plant need? And it can just tell you based on this thing here, that thing here, this is what's going on. This is what it might need. Again, it's a brilliant application. Yeah, we, we use, I think everybody's tried to use this, um, what's it called, the app uh, that pick pick something. Uh, there's a bit of famous plants one that everyone uses. Anyway, can't remember. Great app though. Just type in AI <laughs> plant app problem if you ever have problems with your plants. I almost killed a cactus once, so I, I oh. definitely need that. Um, How on earth do you yeah, kill a cactus? <laughs> mate, don't, don't even start. No, I don't know. Uh, but she's, she's alive and well now over here. Her name's Molly and she's doing really well. It's a bit of an odd cactus. Uh, it's one of those ones that like hang down. I don't know if you've seen them before. Kind of like hangs down and grows into like multiple things. Oh, it's uh, pretty great. cool. And it's fluffy. You can actually stroke the cactus. It's soft. It doesn't poke oh, you. Oh, wow. Which is really yeah. lovely. 
yeah so it's a different kind of cactus all right so give me that at least which is why i almost killed it once anyway so uh... yeah one of the other things that we've um been working on is um we've just started um to support the uh, accelerator for um uh, spring which is the innovation kind of hub for the uk's water sector um so all of the water companies have got together to fund this new innovation accelerator to kind of help them address challenges with water in the uk um amazing if you've uh spent any time watching the news lately you would have seen yes exactly uh, a number of challenges yeah. with just the infrastructure of water here in uh the uk and there's definitely you know, been quite a lot of funny memes around that i have to say um but yeah cu curious to hear from you uh <laughs> what's yeah, what the some yeah. of the challenges have been? There's there's so many challenges. Um, you know, internally we have a number of challenges to address, and what we're, you know, I think a lot of the the water companies have realised the, the the power of innovation and working in partnership with startups. And so at the moment we're looking for startups with technologies that have applications to you know water infrastructure. How do you help solve challenges mm -hmm. with identifying? Uh, you know, new leaks, addressing uh, territorial challenges across cities with regards to infrastructure of water, flow of water. How do you address consumer behavior, which is, again, another huge aspect to the challenges of water? Now, make no mistakes about it. Water companies do have some internal challenges to um, uh, address in order to make things better. But again, consumers have their own part to play in the whole, um, the whole puzzle of what's challenging sort of water sector in terms of, you know, which I didn't know until I started working in this area as well, in terms mm. of, you know, a huge amount of the challenges that happen with regards to burst pipes, which take millions of pounds to address year on year is mainly just due to us flushing wet wipes down the toilet. Wow. Um, and so something you, so simple. Yeah. Something as simple as that um, could have a massive impact on just how much we pay for water, because if there's less repairs needed, if there's less, um, uh, if there's less needed in order to address the challenges of, burst pipes and rectifying them and all of the things that go into the whole repairing of what's these really, to be fair, old infrastructural systems. Um, it could be a partly helped just through consumer behavior. And so there's a lot of things that we are looking for at the moment in terms of companies that have not, and it's not just companies as well. We're also looking for innovators, innovate individuals. So it's more of a venture studio as well. So we're looking for both both companies and individuals who could become part of a team who have ideas to build new solutions for the water sector here in the UK. That's very cool. Wow. Well, you've heard it. I mean, yeah, if there's anybody out there who's listening and, and is interested, definitely um, worth checking that out. Spring, you mentioned it's called, right? Spring, it's uh, a partnership between um, Microsoft, who are um, providing a lot of the accelerator resource as well, um, Impact X um, Capital, who's a venture studio here in London, oh, sorry, a venture capital fund here in London, who fund um, uh, underrepresented founders. And between us all, it's kind of a 
sort of partnership to help sort of support the water industry in terms of finding new technologies that might address some of these challenges. That's really cool. Wow. I, I'm excited to hear more as we catch up, hopefully over time, kind of some of the progress that's happening there. Um, sounds really exciting. It sounds like that definitely something is needed. Um, with, I, I came back from uh, on Thursday, by the way, after a lot, after a, I was away for quite a while, um, only to realize that apparently Thames water is going under or something. And I was like, what, what, what's going on? I mean, I leave the country <laughs> for two months. <laughs> but um <laughs> but there have been some 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 problems that they've been having um i haven't actually dug too deep into it at all i don't know if you know much about it either but do you, do you know what kind of generally is going on there at the moment or shall i just go uh, and read the news at some point yeah it's i, I think it's something i'd probably not <laughs> get too deep in just in case i say anything that i shouldn't but um no, no fair, enough. Again, yeah, fair enough again <laughs> again it goes it, it goes back to i think a challenge a lot of companies have um, in terms of having very old systems internally, and, and in this case, water mm. water companies have both internal systems and infrastructural systems in our in our city that have to work together in order to provide us with just one of the most important resources that we as people use every single day in terms of um, water. Um, and over time, it it it's, it's the double edged sword of having to either pay for innovation or pay to rebuild what you already have. Mm. And so you have to figure out how do you manage these two processes at once. Um, and for a lot of companies, they it's, it's a long journey, but innovation can help. Working with startups can help. Working with innovators who can help, who have had unique experiences and are building things that can help solve these problems. And that's the journey that the water companies are going through at the moment. I think the energy companies have been through that process a lot earlier. Got it. They've gone through this in terms of introducing smart energy, energy meters, energy usage apps, all of these different things that have helped the energy sector. I mean, of course, there's still the impact of, you know, supply and price and all of that well, of but course, yeah, yeah. you know at the same time they're a little further ahead it's now the water company's turn to go through this process okay i mean look it, it happens right and there's got to be fixed and that's part of part of the journey um so measuring tracking as well as actual improving the systems all th all things yeah. are needed by the sound of it so if, so if people have ideas then yeah really cool um, obviously not cool that that's happening out of a crisis, but nonetheless, <laughs> it's cool that we, you know, we're, we're innovating and doing something about it. So, so, Hey, opportunity yeah. is, uh, lies therein. Um, mm -hmm. exciting stuff. So, um, and any other exciting things you, you're working on right now, my friend, I, I feel like that's probably a lot on your plate already. So, yeah. And, um, I, I probably, I mean, there's quite a lot, but I think some of the more high profile ones of just the ones that I've mentioned, um, and also, um, a new program for, Africa um, as a whole, as a continent. And so historically, yeah. um, mm. you know, Africa has some hugely and massively growing ecosystems and economies. And what we're trying to do at the moment is explore what would a new kind of investment platform look like for Africa as a continent? The idea is nothing new. It's been tried before. And I think many smaller platforms exist in order to facilitate investment into Africa, but none on the scale that necessarily that 
is being thought about at the moment. So this is a new partnership between both the African Union and the European Union to think about how do we unlock a lot of the investment capital from around the world of the diaspora and investors that exist in every part of the world to now begin to think about how they invest either back into their home country, into new businesses or into other African countries where a platform may be able to facilitate those types of transactions. So historically things have been tried before, but I think technology is moving on so fast and opportunities to leverage those technologies and new data and new learning to build something now or to try to build something now, I think presents a new opportunity. Um, and certainly the very exciting stuff. Yeah, certainly the wealth of the diaspora is at a different place than where it may have been, say, you know, over the last ten years at different points. So, and the appetite to invest as well. So, all of these things have converged to present a massive opportunity. What is lacking at the moment is one platform that is kind of universal in its understanding that enables and facilitates investments into all different opportunities and sectors across different countries in Africa. And that's the thing that we are exploring at the moment um, with this new program. Sounds like a big project and sounds really exciting. Um, every time we speak, you're working on something uh, that, that's big and fun and exciting. So can't wait to see where it goes, my friend. Um, I would love to carry on chatting for longer. Um, I know we, we put a bit of a sort of a stop time around around now-ish. Um, don't want to make it too late for whatever, whatever you've got coming up next. Um, but yeah, you can dive a lot deeper into some of the things we spoke about today and can dive a lot deeper in, into things you're going to work on in the future. So I'm sure we'll have a conversation again at some point um, if you're up for it. Yeah, and, definitely, um, definitely up for a part two because I think there's okay. a lot of detail. We covered a lot of the surface stuff today, but there's a lot of detail that hangs below that that I think would probably be yeah. really interesting for your audience. Absolutely. And and the fact that you know, you're know you someone who's very uniquely positioned in this case because you've been part of this growing ecosystem in London, which has become one of the best in the world. Um, so your insights and expertise within that is just something that you know, I, I personally just want to have a chat and just dive deeper and learn more and more. And I'm sure there are many people out there who'd find it really beneficial to have, um, to, to hear more around this as well. So Anthony, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for making the time. Uh, we've been chatting probably like two and a half hours now. Wow. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I did as well. Um, always, always. Be, before, before we go just very quickly, um, You've given a lot of advice, mentioned a lot of things today. Um, one piece of advice for uh, young founders uh, right now, just one piece of advice. Oh, uh, yeah, one piece of advice. I would say um, <clears throat> just go for more walks. Um, I'm not sure where you're based. If you <laughs> have some outdoor space just to take your shoes off and walk on the grass and think about what do you want to do with your life? Um, I'm, I'm old enough now to be able to reflect and say, actually, you know what, um, there's some things that I have enough time to correct my course and, and, and do things that really matter to, to me, family, to, you know, what I want to do in life. And 
I would say just just take your foot off the gas for a little bit, go for a walk and just take some time to reflect and do it as often as you can because you never know what might come to mind on one of those walks. There we have it. Thank you. I'll, I'll start by taking the advice myself. Thanks so much. Um, <laughs> Anthony, mate, I hope you have a brilliant day, week ahead. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll speak soon. Thanks Thank you very on. much. It's great to great to enjoy you. Thank you. We hope that you liked the episode. This podcast was sponsored by QFind, a hiring platform that matches candidates with jobs and employers based on many factors that ensure longer term alignment. It goes way beyond package and salaries and taking into account much, much more than that to ensure a happy uh, working environment for everybody. To find out more about this podcast and to see further releases, we'll be announcing them at the atqfinds.io uh, Instagram page, as well as on the qfinds.io website, as well as from my own personal uh, Instagram page and my own personal LinkedIn. All information you need that we spoke about in the podcast or this information mentioned here will be mentioned below in the description. So take a look, visit those links. And if you like anything or want to get in touch, uh, please do. And lastly, stay tuned for more. Have an amazing week ahead of you.